0: Oh, and welcome to a new episode of The Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by football finance expert Kieran Maguire. Kieran, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much for the invite, Connor. Should be fun.
0: Kieran, where did this love for football and finance begin?
1: Well, it started with the love of football. Yeah, I've been football crazy since I was that high. Um, and, And I've been, I started teaching in the 80s, and I've just been teaching ever since. Uh, and I always found that if, if I use Manchester United or Liverpool or Chelsea to uh, explain something to my students, they, they tended to take a lot more interest in it than if I was talking about Mercedes-Benz or Marks and Spencers or yeah, some dull corporates. So I've, I've always tried to incorporate football into it, and then in 2004, five uh when the when the glazers took over at manchester united i I just happened to be doing a day's teaching at the banks who were advising the glazers and uh about two o'clock in the afternoon when uh when the new york stock exchange opens uh all the uh all all the doors were shuttered and these four huge big bouncers went on the front door and i said you know what's going on here guys and said Oh, there's a, there's a deal going through. Uh, we've been advising the Glazer family to take over Manchester United. I said, You're kidding. Yeah. So it was, um, and then the BBC phoned up uh, my university and said, Can somebody explain explain what's going on? And I said, Yeah, well, we, we've got this guy with a big mouth who just talked about football all the time. So, so use him. So, so they phoned me up, and then it sort of just sort of snowballed by itself because you then get asked to do another show and another and provided you don't mess up you you just get on a list of people who they like to talk to and it started off with just the bbc then it went to the other tv channels and uh, then uh university of liverpool they wanted somebody to teach just football finance when i was there you yeah, my hand was my hand was up i'll i'll do it and uh it, it's just sort of been sort of you know sliding doors moments but uh uh, I, I'll be honest I, I do enjoy it um, it's it's yeah, part of it's my job and part of it's a hobby
0: and it's only today you've hit the pinnacle of your career appearing on the Lowdown podcast
1: absolutely absolutely <laughs> So the, the, the only way is down
0: <laughs> and looking at that big yellow book behind you Caring um, the Price of Football where did that fit into the whole narrative um
1: well, again, it, it it was never an intention of mine. My, my students at university constantly complain that there's no book on football finance as such. I mean that there's soconomics, which is excellent, but there's nothing which sort of really really sort of explains how the numbers for an individual club fit together. So, it's just one of those those accidental things. I was I was at I was at the BBC, sitting on the sofa talking about some nonsense and uh, a publisher was watching BBC Breakfast heard me talk and just contacted me and says there's no football finance book why don't you go and write it so it it took me took me two and a half years uh, the first version he said was too dry uh too academic so um am I allowed to swear on the show by the way yeah. Oh, that's okay. Um, and so I wrote, so I rewrote it in, in sort of the style which I would prefer, which was sort of more uh, fanzine style. And, and he wrote back to me and says, "You have to rewrite it again. You, you can't call Mike Ashley a wanker all the time. Uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to be a serious, uh, serious professional." So I sort of ended up with the version that we presently have. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I still try to get a few digs in where I can especially towards crystal palace. Uh, but, but it was, again, it was sort of, it's a labor of love because it came out just before COVID. So, which was a disaster because all the bookshops closed. So, uh, I, I I was a bit, bit disappointed that nobody was going to buy it. So, so I said to the, uh, I said to the publisher, give all the royalties, uh, to, uh, to a, to a food bank charity, you know, cause people are going without. Um, and then it went to number one in, in Amazon sports books within about three weeks of, of launch. And um, my wife said, how many, how many copies has it? sold?" we go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so I, I still don't know how many copies it, it has sold in total because I, I don't want to know because I've given away all of my rights. Um, for, so uh, yeah, when, when, when I, when I wrote the second edition, my wife, said uh, okay you, you've been a nice guy for the first 12 months uh can we make some you know, can, you, know you, you put so many hours into writing it you should get i.e she wants a new handbag yeah that's 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 wife talk we both know uh so uh so yeah it, it's it's done it's done well uh as has the audiobook so you know why on earth somebody wants an audiobook of me talking about spreadsheets and balance sheets is beyond me but it, it's done okay
0: I'd have to second that as much, Karen. But um, you know, what I'm most intrigued about is, you know, over time you've been able to carve out a niche, you know, focusing on finance within football. Um, I mean, for me, there's really two trends of thought. Do you believe, I suppose, there's a degree of financial financial illiteracy amongst the football public? Or do you think it's just a case of football fans throughout the years and, and ensuing decades really putting their fingers in their ears?
1: Um I don't think I don't think it's financial illiteracy as the desire to want to know a bit more you know and, and that's why I've sort of managed to to get this this position what whatever this position is and I don't really know because you know when you're in the centre of a storm you're the last person to know what's happening around you um there's there's been a lot of Uh, thoughts amongst the football population especially amongst fans that money has ruined the game money certainly changed the game and what I've tried to do is to be as objective and as neutral as I can it's 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 improved some aspects of the sport you know we we, it is far more cosmopolitan it's it's far more diverse than it used to be and, and I think that's got to be welcomed Um, At the same time, it does make you feel a little bit tawdry at times uh, in in respect of the numbers that are going round and the behaviour of owners. I I, I have no issue with with footballers earning big money because they're in the entertainment industry, people in Formula One, people in tennis. You've got American sports. You look look at people in the entertainment industry uh, who, who all earn huge sums uh, you know, because they're good at, if they're good at singing or telling jokes or being an actor, they can earn a lot of money. So why shouldn't a footballer? But uh, the, the behaviour of owners, especially with Super League and Project Big Picture, just just made me feel very ashamed of the game at times.
0: And within the grand scheme of things, do you think carrying COVID was the dam necessarily or do you think it was the last domino of a lineage of dominoes to fall? Which led to essential, you know, it lent a. y we've seen the lower leagues in the UK, the havoc which it caused. And, you know, that's not to say about the ownership rules and whatnot. But I mean, getting back to what I said, was COVID the dam or was it just the final domino to fall? Um
1: I I think COVID was just a was just a convenient excuse. Uh I mean in, in terms of the dam. No clubs have actually gone bust since COVID. Yeah, you know, we've uh, and for all of the the concentration of wealth within the Premier League, the Premier League has lent money or given grants to clubs in the lower leagues, without which those clubs would be out, gone out of business. So uh, it it could have been. Um, it it, it cert- certainly it hasn't helped, and I'm slightly twitchy that a lot of fans. Have now thought, oh, with they think we're through COVID and we're not. Yeah, we could easily have another lockdown this 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 winter. And they think that the football industry is through COVID and it's not. It's simply got slightly different debts, slightly bigger sums owed to people and so on. Um, but it it was certainly from the from, from the uh elite club's perspective, it was an opportunity for them to uh, cash in on, on their existing power because they thought that the other clubs were weak. And they were. They, were, they weren't in a position to, to put up much of a fight. Um, and uh, yeah, thank, uh, and just thank heavens for Chelsea fans, Manchester United fans, Liverpool fans, every, you know, every fan, e- even those clubs that would have benefited financially, saying, you're not doing this under our name. And, and there's been some things which have made me so proud to be a football fan. Um, over the course of the last 18 months or so, where where fans have said, no, you're not taking further. If you can afford to pay a player 400 grand a week, then you can afford to pay your staff as well. Um, And and the pushback and the fact that the clubs have actually caved in uh, does does make you realise that, uh, you know, as as part of the game which has been increasingly marginalised, because football fans have been taken for granted... Uh, the one time when we actually stood up for ourselves it it worked
0: if you look at it too I mean even it exists within your own club Tony Bloom lifelong Brighton fan and we've seen Matthew Benham at Brentford I I mean we've seen those two guys you know Bloom and Benham they've done so good surely you know there can be more and more ethical ownership that goes into the game of football no? um there can be, but some yeah, some people
1: would say, "Well, hold on, those two guys, you know, they're both lifelong fans, but they've also made their money from gambling. They've made money um, on the backs of the misfortune of others." So, it it's 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 very difficult in football to say who is the the perfect owner. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Tony Bloom walks on water. Yeah, if. if if, uh, if, if I saw him about to be knocked over by a car I'd jump in front of the car myself because you know he, he's uh, it, I owe him that <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, should should football be viewed through a moral and ethical lens which is different to any other business because you know we've got you know, we, we've got arms companies we've got jewelry companies who make their money from blood diamonds we've got, uh you know high fat sugar and salt food companies who are converting us into a planet of obese type two diabetes uh you know time bombs and if 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 we don't turn a blind eye to those why why should we be treating football clubs to a higher standard but we do you know and uh you know the fact that uh yeah i i I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work in the city of Liverpool. I, I, I love the city of Liverpool. I love the people there. I've lived in Manchester half my life as well. Uh, two fantastic cities, and the relationship that they have with the football clubs and the owners is is a weird one because neither neither set of fans really likes the owners. Um, although it could be argued that they've delivered in terms of trophies and investment.
0: Yeah, it's you know, which devil do you choose, Karen? That's what it really boils down to when it comes to football. But um, you know, going back to COVID, which I promise we won't spend too much time on. But um, it's only served to, you know, exasperate the wealth gaps that already existed in football, where we see money and power concentrated amongst a handful of Europeans elite. You know, that's not to say you look at the English Premier League nowadays. But I suppose where did it all begin?
1: Um it, it, i think i think it began when people realized that owning a football club brought you a kudos that you get perhaps in no other vehicle in, in the on the planet um the premier League is, is is one of this country's most successful exports uh yeah manchester united have have a fan base of over a billion people in the world Real Madrid and Barcelona are pretty damn big, as we all know. And people realize that therefore by owning a football club, you could get a place in society that that doesn't exist at at any one time. There's only 20 premier league football clubs. Well, you think about it, if you're, if you're already a billionaire and, and there's quite a few billionaires around, you've got the, You've got the apartment in Monaco. You've got the yacht. You've got the helicopter. You've got the supermodel wife with, you know, all the trimmings, shall we say? And um, you've just bought yourself an island and a and a helicopter and, and whatever. And, and but all your friends have got those as well. So, you know, how do you stand out amongst them? Here's here's an idea: go and buy yourself a Premier League football club, and then say to your friends, uh, "Oh." Uh, Liverpool are playing at our place this weekend uh, you want to come in the director's box and can you see that you' you've just trumped everybody None. so so people started to realize that and, and we have seen this uh, this use of football as a as a trophy asset and that that didn't used to be the case you know it, historically it was local butcher baker candlestick maker haulage, Firm um, used to do it, and you'd see you'd see the owners in their sheepskin jackets, and yeah, you know, the, the football club was a local thing. But the, the Premier League is now global, and, and the ownership structure is global, and, and that's come with it.
0: I think within the ownership structure, Kieran there's another element to. It too. I think it's something which is you know it's become more and more apparent. Um, during financial fair play, we see you know the likes of Manchester City, state-owned Manchester City. Chelsea, my own club, owned by an oligarch, you know, they're so readily able to absorb losses. You know, they don't have the misfortune that other clubs have to borrow from banks. You know, these clubs are largely protected by financial fair play. Would you say financial fair play, and I know this is something you've touched upon on your Twitter in the past, would you say financial fair play works in a way to theoretically make it impossible for other clubs to compete? Yes,
1: yes, I mean, it... I think there's a number of issues in terms of financial fair play. First of all, people pick up on the word fair. And the one thing that financial fair play is not is fair. Um, In its original guise, the aim was to reduce debt. And then clubs such as Barcelona, Real Madrid and Manchester United point out and said, hold on, we're the biggest clubs in the world and we've got loads of debt. And we've just seen. You you said that your club's Chelsea. Well, we've seen uh, Chelsea come along uh, under Roman Abramovich. Doesn't owe a dime in in effect because it's it's funded through shares. So, so they had to create something new, and the fear was that the the nouveau riche in European football, Chelsea, Manchester City, PSG potentially other clubs as well um, would have been able to compete and indeed beat the the established elite uh, in terms of their ability to pay for players in both transfer fees and wages. So so that's why they created this this profit-based or or loss-based financial fair play system. Um, But that has had the, the subsequent effect of of closing the door. Yeah, we we now have a very, very thick glass ceiling between those clubs who made their money or incurred their losses pre-FFP and the likes of, you know, if if I look at the Premier League, we've got Everton under Mashiri. He's quite happy. If if they lose 150, 200 million pounds a year for three or four years, it doesn't bother him in the least. Uh, If you look at the owners of Villa, you know, they've, they've got, they've got squillions to, to spend if they so desire but but they, they are prevented from doing something similar to what we saw with Manchester City yeah rumors City signed Rubinho and Joe and you know loads of players on pretty big fees yeah Wilfred Boney yeah and uh, I, I, I I only found out you know, go, go, yeah I'm not having a go at Chelsea here but but Victor Moses only left Chelsea this summer. And I thought, I've not seen him in a Chelsea shirt for about five years. So, yeah, you know, the, the fact that clubs could afford to sign players and it didn't work out and still pay those wages without having a problem in terms of well, that means we can't recruit anybody else. Um, yeah, it, those, those clubs had a certain advantage, but it has had the. Uh, The consequence which in my view was intended and is intended to keep control of the game in the hands of relatively few clubs uh, from a financial point of view but also from being able to uh, hoover up those Champions League spots which are so valuable
0: and I suppose Curran if they weren't so covert about their intentions but financial fair play they certainly were so with uh, (laughs) the Super League last April and I must say, in fairness, your book, it was probably it was on the last chapter, I believe, predicted the rise of a super league, you know, where the wealth and all the money and the power would be controlled by a select few, the JP Morgan-owned Super League. Um, I mean, would it be stupid to say we're in it clear? Do you envisage a super league happening in your or mine lifetime?
1: Uh in your lifetime, probably. I've, I've got fewer years on the clock to go. Um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I, I think it certainly has been pushed back. And the noises that have come out of the clubs in English football will make it very, very difficult for them to reverse what they've been saying over the past few months. Yeah, they've all said, yeah, they are all wearing the hair shirts. Oh, yeah, we misunderstood, yes. Uh, we, we, were, we were being bullied into it by Real Madrid and, uh, you know, I'm, I can't say too much, but I'm presently involved in a documentary on Super League. So uh, I think more will come out uh, in due course uh, with, with regards to some of the people behind it who were pretty pretty duplicitous in, in terms of uh, what, what they'd said to uh, some of the clubs to try to persuade them to join it. So yeah, it, 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 I think it's a, fascinating, it's, a, it's a fascinating book and a film to be made, uh, if, if we get to the full details. But the one thing I think we've learned in football is, is never say never. From From a private equity point of view, from JP Morgan's point of view, from the point of view of the 12 clubs involved, it was a brilliant project. Because what better way to play football than to know that you don't have to win matches to be in a competition. That's fantastic. You know, and uh, not allowing transfers from one Super League club to another. So therefore, you know, Chelsea... You, couldn't have recruited Lukaku if he was playing for another Champions League club, because there, there'd have been this, uh, this protocol, this agreement that prevented it. Well, that's really good for keeping players' wages down. And in fact, the target was for wages to be no more than 55% of income. That means there's an awful lot of profit, and that means who gets the profit? The owners. So yeah, there, there would have been very, very significant winners not many of them, 12 of them, and, and their backers, and the rest of football would have suffered. But you know, if, if you believe in trickle-down economics, um, of which there is no evidence uh, as, that has ever worked, but if you believe that uh, one of the ways to, to solve problems is to give billionaires more money, and, and they'll look after it, and, and they'll give it to to people less wealthy. And, and effectively, this sort of this was the argument put forward by Perez. Um, then, then it, it it was a wonderful idea. It just was bad for it was good for twelve clubs. Bad for twelve thousand.
0: It certainly hasn't thrown off private equity investors that want to get into football. We've seen recently, you know, last month, even La Liga and CVC partners. Um, it's such a deal, Karen. Will that set a precedent for the future?
1: Um, I, I think it was, sent, it was set at an interesting benchmark price. Uh, you know, we, we've seen both the Bundesliga and Syria reject the overtures of, of private equity. I mean, yeah, the, the nature of private equity companies is that they're there to make money for their investors. They are not interested in football. Let, let's not you know, pretend in any way, shape or form. That they're some kind of you know, benevolent uh, organizations who have seen that the football industry globally is struggling and, and they're here to lend a helping hand. The, the, uh, the Liga deal meant giving 10% of your future revenues for the next 50 years. And yeah, that's you, you do the math you know, on that and you know 10% of you know, some pretty, pretty big numbers to begin with for 50 years. Um, and, and in return, uh, the La Liga clubs got you know, 2.7 billion euro, which would have been really useful for Barcelona and Real Madrid because, uh, as, as businesses, they are very
0: poorly run. Yeah, but I, I don't see too many clubs, you know, as we've begun this conversation, but saying, you know, they're going to take the ethical, moral ground, you know, money, the other forms of business don't necessarily do that. And as I was preparing for this interview, I mean, scrolling through your Twitter, recent weeks, I mean, you spoke about football clubs extending or casting the net wide for sponsors, you know, at the moment they're signing deals with crypto gambling firms and fan-talking service providers. Haven't read the article now myself, Kieran. i I'm just a bit more intrigued for you to elaborate. I mean, what does this mean for the football industry and fans? Uh, for the football
1: industry, it, it means that they will take any dollar provided it's not deemed to be illegal by government so the um if if you take a look at the the 20 sponsors of clubs in the premier league not a single one of them makes anything you know and that's that's the world that we've moved from i'm old enough to remember uh you know liverpool were the first ever sponsored football club by Hitachi and I remember Liverpool with crown paints and so on but what have we now got we've got uh, we've we've got financial institutions we've got gambling institutions we've got crypto institutions we've got uh, we've got a few service companies in the form of airlines but that's about it Um, it, so from, from a club's point of view and I actually spoke to a commercial director of a Premier League football club recently and said you know what's the score you know, you know this isn't going to go down well with government and he said we're skin. you know the prep the prep, and the premier league had lost an awful lot of money last year uh, we'll skin and we will take the highest offer from whoever makes it and if the government brings in legislation then it will be tapered so that you, you know, after 2025 you can't have a uh, a crypto sponsor or, or a gambling sponsor until then you know it's it's not illegal, so let's do it. And I I guess you can see that perspective. Although, you know, uh, I know that some clubs have deliberately tried to take a a more of an ethical stance. So we saw Everton's relationship with Sport Pacer that that deteriorated last year, and, and they've moved it now into an online, you know, secondhand car dealership. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think club- clubs are aware that, that, that they don't particularly like doing these deals, but um, they're prepared to. From a fan's point of view, I, I, I am concerned. Um, I, I, I don't know whether you've seen Southampton's new home shirt, but it's it's got augmented reality built into it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a bit like Pokemon Go you know you can go round and you can you you have to find certain things um and that's okay if it's genuinely fun that's fine but if if you then have to start paying more and more to get some of your your augmented reality elements to work then you know are we are we pumping the fans for money in a similar way to what we see in you know in, in computer games whereby you know, you're, you're unlocking boxes and it co- and you might be getting star players and so on so yeah you know, it, it's not just football itself it's everybody connected with football um but my other reservation with regards to the direction it's going into with its new sponsors is that it's un- it's an unregulated market we've just seen the collapse of football index that ought to be a sign yeah you know, i when i see people's twitter handles which which advises me that they are crypto traders no they're not they're they you know the the nature of cryptocurrency is that the markets are moved by the the big owners not by not by the little guy and and it's the fact that an awful lot of people in my view are potentially going to lose money on, on on the back of this and is this is this a gateway drug to 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 more hardcore gambling so it, it's not something i feel at ease with myself we, we've just had last week yeah, probably one of the country's leading cryptocurrency experts uh explain it to me because because a lot of it does go over my head and he, yeah. um and he he was at pains to point out that it, it's it's kept up by faith and that's not necessarily a good thing
0: Sounds like the idea of Florentino Perez as a uh, millennial football fan. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yes, it, it goes in, in the 60-minute in the matches that Florentino Perez will be saying because, because apparently, according to good old P, um, you know, we, we can't uh, young people can't concentrate for 90 minutes. Now, as a parent, uh, having had to get somebody off of call of duty, which they've been playing for six hours... Young people can concentrate, I can
0: assure you. I think that's a conversation for another day, but I mean, just I suppose that's something to discuss now, even Kieran. I mean, you say you go on Twitter now and you find football fans' handles, you know, you know, they're trading this and that, this player a via cryptocurrency. Maybe Perez was actually onto something right when he spoke about what the future football fan will look like. Maybe he's got just a time difference a bit wrong, but nonetheless, there is something to be taken from it. I heard you um, on Stephen Houston's podcast earlier on this year, and it was a brilliant conversation. And he spoke about, you know, where's a 16-year-old nowadays going to pull 40, 45 pounds out of the back of his pocket to go sit in a Stratford End and watch United? You know, in a way, the football clubs themselves have a lot to be looked at in terms of their treatment of what are we called, again, legacy fans,
1: yeah, you're absolutely right. And if you take a look at the uh, the data put out by the Premier League, the the average age of a person attending a match is 41. Yeah, I I started going. I mean, I, I moved to Brighton when I was 11 and started watching them. And what you did is you caught a bus or you got a lift from a neighbour, and it, and it would cost me you know 15, 20 pence. And I remember when it went up to a pound, it was outrageous. Um, but yeah, I, I I agree that there are uh, fans being exploited but it but the, it is still possible to to watch football at a for a moderate fee you know, if you go in the family stands there are lower there are lower uh, ticket prices for under 16s under 18s and so on um and I, I think people are just used to consuming football in a different way uh you know, do, do do people. Watch it for ninety minutes, concentrating on the match. Even I don't do that these days when I'm watching my own team. You know, I, I'm 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 keeping an eye on Twitter. I'm I'm you know, WhatsApping my friends, and, and I, I think I think it will simply be be watched in a different manner. Um, the the crowds at the Premier League and, and also broadly in the Championship are, are at the highest levels ever. So that you know, there still is a there is there is still an appetite for the game. Uh, you know, Real and Barcelona managed to sell out because they they appeal to non-legacy fans. And yeah, those fans are, are literally money money on the hoof. And, and, you know, Perez is there with his butterfly net saying, come to watch Real Madrid and, you know, I'll, I'll charge you 80 or 100 euro to watch a match. And if people think that's a rip-off, then you, you try going to an NFL game or an NHL game in the States. Yeah. When when I, I've I've been fortunate enough to teach in the U S on, on occasions. And I thought, wow, wow. Yeah. I've always wanted to go and watch uh, US franchise sports, just, just out the curiosity value. And of course, that means that I'm a tourist fan myself and I ended up paying huge amounts of money and nobody bats an eyelid. Um, so, you know, is what, what is football competing against? I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, at, at the lower levels, the prices are still modest because they have to work harder to get the fans in. Um, Man- Manchester United, uh, and, and I've, I've criticised people, senior people at Manchester United, where I felt it's been warranted. But nine years out of the last 10, they've not increased season ticket prices. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. They, they could easily put up the prices, but th- th- there are still good people in the game that are trying to... Not push it too far out of the the wallets of the um, of of the old school fans, um, but it is more middle class. It, it it is more family orientated than it was thirty years ago, um, and you know I, as we saw in France last night, it can still be a bit lively, um, but in the main. As, you know, as, as somebody that used to, to travel to away matches up and down this country in the 80s, it's, it, it's a lot more sanitized. And you know, I'm, at my age, I'm, I'm just glad that I don't have to go and run to a station ch- chased by 400 rather angry Wolverhampton Wanderers fans as, as happened in 1981.
0: Um, I suppose if we're going to move on to notable transfers of the last summer, Kieran, um one of which being Lionel Messi and his move to PSG. Now, there's been quite a debate in the footballing media recently. Of course, Messi moved on a freeze, getting paid astronomical sum wages at PSG. But can PSG make the money back on Messi t-shirt sales?
1: On, on t-shirt sales, no. No, on uh, on merchandise, certainly not. And w- will, will they have sold a few more units? Yes. But what will happen is that yeah, you know, in, instead of having Neymar on the back of your shirt, you've got Messi. So you still only sold the one shirt. You just go and change. It. So, so there'll be there'll be a bit more, uh, a bit more money coming in, but but not significantly. Um, where they will make their money is uh, in terms of the the commercial sponsorship deals, because if, if you've got a product, yeah, you know, you've you've got your you've got your a snack partner or a mobile phone partner or, or you know, in, in Manchester United's case, tractor wheel partner. Um, and the club says, well, you know, we, we can send one of the players along and they say, mm, yeah, any chance of, yeah, yeah. I said, it yeah, can be done, but it'll cost you another you know, million euro. And he's, he's, he's there with his tractor parts and so on. So, yeah, he makes some money out of that and the club makes, and, and that's how they will recoup. The, the costs and, and, in, and in terms of PSG's recruitment ultimately if you're a football club you look at the total cost of employing a player over a contract and that total cost is transfer fee plus wages well if you take the transfer fee away all of a sudden you can afford to pay higher wages and Lionel Messi is not the highest paid player at PSG you know that, that he's still on less than Neymar uh, so i i think they they can afford to do that um they if, if i was the the commercial department at uh, at psg i'd just be hugging myself every day because all of a sudden you know those those home matches where you were hoping to sell boxes for yeah, you know, 150 euro per person and you've got a 10 po then suddenly oh we make that yeah we make that 250 or 300 because leo's playing and, and you know you, you've only and the park de prance was expanded in 2016 so i remember i was fortunate enough to be no i was unfortunate enough to be at the uh, at the euro 2016 final my god that was a dreadful game of football um and the only thing i can remember it, it we were we were invaded by moths I don't know whether you recall that match, but there was there were hundreds of thousands of moths at the matches attacking the players. Um, but it's a big stadium; they're planning to make it bigger still. There's lots of boxes, there's lots of hospitality, and from a from a corporate point of view, what better way to entertain a client if you're a you know if you're an IT firm or a law firm or say, say Well, we've got a box at uh, Parc de Brants. And uh, PSG are playing at home and Lionel Messi's playing. He's the greatest player in the world. He's probably going to be, you know, he's in his, you know we all know that he's in his last innings when it comes to football. See him whilst you can. And you, you, you can name your own price for those boxes now.
0: I think Lionel Messi holding a tractor pack here and certainly is the image everybody needs to see after a torrid 2020. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, over the next few seasons, can those football fans be expecting to see anything on the horizon when it comes to any significant changes when it comes to financial reforms or perhaps ownership in the EFL? Um,
1: I, I, I don't think they can afford to put up prices significantly. You know, so I, I don't think fans should be made to pay for COVID for losses incurred. So I think that's, that's a positive. Um, the EFL has made some progress uh yeah i i think it's reasonably well known that that uh, I, I don't have a very good relationship with the efl now there's no reason why they should yeah at the end of the day i'm a no mark teacher yeah i know I, I know my my place but uh, I, I seem to have i seem to have upset them on quite a few occasions but uh yeah i've, I've also praised them when I've, i think they've done some good things um we, we've we've seen a few changes of ownership which have been rejected for the right reasons and existing owners booted out for the right reasons so so that's a step forward um we do have the fan-led review of football that has the opportunity to make progress but it it, it won't be a cure-all so i i don't envisage huge changes um you know it's still 11 versus 11 45 minutes And uh, the referee is a wanker uh, when he doesn't award us a penalty. So, you know, that's the the position that I think will be uh, maintained. I think the gaps between divisions will grow. Wages in the lower leagues. I can't see much growth opportunity there. At the lower part of the Premier League, I would say the same. At the higher level. But I think potentially it could go up though. So the, so the gaps between the elite and the non-elite are likely to, to expand.
0: For Florentino Perez might uh, have something to say about 90-minute games of football, Kieran. Um <laughs> Finally, uh, to end, Kieran, it it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion and wonderful insight into the finances behind the football industry. But considering you're someone who's merged, I suppose, your two passions, football and finance, I mean, would you have any advice for people willing to explore their own niche or cult it within the football industry? My um,
1: my my advice would be try to be as honest as you can. Try to be as objective and neutral. Um, you know, I, I have a, I have a lot of contact with Rangers and Celtic fans who think i'm both they all think i'm biased against their club and and then you tend to know that you're probably doing something right uh you know i talk a lot to newcastle fans and i say well mike Mike actually's not by certainly not the best owner but he's not actually the worst owner in football so so try it if if you want to get some sort of position uh you know even if it's you know mine which is yeah effectively an online role um put out stuff which has value and you, you know I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the number two football finance guy around, you know, we all know that Swiss Ramble who's who I've got to know. And, and I absolutely a hero worship. You know, he's, 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 a, he was the another inspiration for me Um, to just to put out stuff there, which, which people will value. You can do it by yourself. You know, I started off, you know, this, the, the normal route, which was, twitter blog now i've got the podcast and the book and uh you know i've got i've got I've sort of work vaguely you know with not for the media but but with people from the media so it it can be done um and keep it simple uh you know i'm i'm an academic but as far as i'm concerned i'm i'm, I'm first and foremost a football fan who goes down the pub and if I can explain things to my mates down the pub, then I can explain them to a broader audience. And, and that's always the approach that I've taken, uh, football, football industry itself, very, very small industry. Uh, it's, 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 it's who, you know, a, a lot of the time, but there, there are, you know, there's an ever expanding media presence. You can come up with something niche such as your know, Arsenal fans, TV, um, you know why why do we watch it? We watch it only when Arsenal lose. If, if you if you look at the ratings, you know uh, the number of viewers when they win, yeah. uh, when they lose, fans from all the other clubs pile in just to watch grown men cry, and and there's something there's something fascinating about that. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there there are there are courses available. There's an awful lot of people enrolling on those courses. There's, there's not more jobs in the in the world of football. So I, I'd be cautious before you, you uh you you part with your wallet with regards to them. Yeah, you know, and I'm I, I'm part of that industry here. I, I teach on a football MBA course at, at the University of Liverpool. Um and, and I've I've seen the industry expand uh, you know in, in the relatively few years since I've been there.
0: Brilliant. Terrific advice. Karen, it it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I'll be sure to attach um, the book, the blog and the podcast below.
1: Well, thanks very much, Conor. It's been an absolute pleasure um, having a chat. And uh, I think it's going to be a pretty damn good season for Chelsea. They are the European champions and they've started the season looking pretty frighteningly uh, efficient, aren't they?
0: Fingers crossed, yes. Uh, judging by the reactions of Arsenal fan TV last night, I think uh, <laughs> it's been for a good season. <laughs> yes. All the best. Cheers now.